All right, good morning. If you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. All right. So, one of my oldest brothers, when he was in high school, he had to be the geekiest, goofiest, wimpiest dude you could have ever seen. He had his big glasses, his big poofy curly hair, big goofy grin. He basically looked like Napoleon Dynamite, except for he was rounder and softer. <laughs> he also happened to be a really, really good wrestler. So my brother, before he would wrestle, it wasn't uncommon for his opponent to see that, oh, <laughs> I'm wrestling that guy. And they would, you know, kind of sit back. They would start cutting up their teammates. They knew that they were about to destroy the guy that they were about to wrestle. In the eyes of the world, my brother, he was weak. And then the match would start. <laughs> and you would see within seconds in their face that they had messed up. <laughs> they were completely wrong. Something glorious about watching someone dominate a wrestling match. There's something more glorious about watching someone dominate a wrestling match when the world thinks that they are weak. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise by David that directly addresses God. On the one hand, David praises God because he's amazing. We see his power in creation. We're going to look at that. But on the other hand, as David meditates on this amazing creator, he's taken aback by God's glory on display through weakness, specifically through the weakness of humans. That's what I want us to see this morning. God loves to display his worth through weakness. So with that, we'll read our text and we'll pray. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. This is God's word. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, you know that I am weak. But Father, I ask that you would display your worth even through me. Calls us to love your word, to hear your word and to receive it and to be shaped by it. And through it, Lord, would you glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got four points for you this morning. Point number one, the glory of God 
and creation. Point number two, the weakness of infants. Number three, the weakness of man. Point number four, the weakness of Christ. I'll hit those again as we go through. Point number one, the glory of God in creation. So you'll notice that the psalm starts and ends with the same words. So look there at verse one and verse nine. They read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in the English, the nuance of what's written here might actually pass us by. But when you see the word Lord in all caps, then that is translating the Hebrew name of God, which is Yahweh. So it would read like this, O Yahweh, our Lord or King or Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, so now maybe you're thinking, cool factoid, (laughs) Uh, what does that mean? Is that that actually packed with anything meaningful? Well, yes. The answer to that is yes. The word word Lord and the name of Yahweh is pregnant with meaning. It It says name that is full of majesty. So when you hear my name, you think of some of my characteristics. Or to say the name Will Stevenson, in pops into your mind images of the baby-faced, curly-headed pastor. Well, in a similar way, the name of Yahweh should cause us to recall the characteristics and the nature of God, in particular, his attributes. So do you remember the famous I am statement back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? When Moses asked God, who should I tell the Jews is sending me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am or Yahweh has sent me to you. But what, what does that mean? What is, what is God getting at when he says that? Well, it means God is the self-existing one. He possesses the quality of a Sadie, which just means he has being in and of himself. No one gives him being. No one creates him. No one sustains him. But he is the one who gives being, who creates, and who sustains. It means God is the eternal one. He is outside of time itself. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. Nothing came before him, and there will be, never be a time in the future when he is not. He has always been and always will be I am. It means he is the unchanging one. God is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing wears God down. Nothing can move him. Nothing inflames his passions or causes him to lose control. Nothing shakes his will or shakes his emotions. Rather, Yahweh is the unchangeable changer, the unshakable shaker, the unmovable mover. And David tells us, right there in verse 1, that the great I am, Yahweh, that he is also Lord. He's the king. 
He is majestic over creation. He is sovereign. That means he is always completely and totally in control of every square inch of this universe. What God says goes. So worthy is he that David, his response to the name of Yahweh, it has to be, how majestic is your name in all the earth? What other response can there be to our God? He is Yahweh, and he deserves an exclamation of his worth out of our mouths. Oh, how majestic he is. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And yet, God, far too often, does not receive the worship that he deserves. The Bible tells us that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in creation. But not everyone really sees the glory of God in it. The glory of God and his majesty, it drips from every tree branch. It is cast over this planet in every ray of sunshine. It dots the night sky when we look above. And David, he sees it. He sees the glory of God in creation. So he says at the end of verse 1, You have set your glory above the heavens. Which means when David looks out at creation, when he sees the wonders of the stars above his head, he sees the glory of God far above that. He sees the glory of God on creation, and he sees the glory of God above creation. The wonders of creation are like a window into the glorious attributes of God. And those who see the God above all creation, they're going to erupt in praise. That's exactly what we see here with David. But for others, they don't perceive the glory of God. They perceive glory in creation. That much is, is clear. The Bible tells us it is clearly seen. So man, he writes poems about the moon. He waxes eloquently about being made out of stardust, which sounds a lot more beautiful than it is true. He stands amazed when he contemplates the great black abyss of space. But he doesn't see any glory above that. The window is opaque. The truth that creation is declaring about God, it is suppressed, like someone trying to hold a beach volleyball underwater. And so, the how majestic is your name in all the earth, it never crosses their lips. They don't see it. And do not be mistaken. Not giving glory to your creator is a grievous sin. So friend, if you're in this room today and you don't worship the Lord, I just want to challenge you to ask yourself some questions. What is the wonder of creation really telling me? Who is it pointing me towards? And how should I respond to the glory of my maker? He deserves your praise. But David takes things a step further. 
Not only is God not worshipped in the way that he deserves, but he is even opposed. We see there in verse 2, he has many foes. Which, in light of what we've seen about God's power, (laughs) that's terrifying. How can you, in your right mind, set yourself up as a foe to oppose the I am? It is the single most foolish thing that anyone could ever do. The Lord can easily swat his enemies away like a gnat through some great display of power. And, and one day, he is going to do exactly that. But in the meantime, what's so fascinating, what David reveals to us in this text, is that God, very often, instead of that great display of power, will show off his worth through weakness. He loves to do it. So let's look at the first way that he does that. Point number two, the weakness of infants. Point number two, the weakness of infants. In verse two, David takes us from the majesty of the I am and then brings us right down to the helplessness of babies. So from the most powerful being in the universe to the weakest thing in the universe. So you feel that contrast? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The same God who can spin up a hurricane, who can launch magma out of a volcano, he forms the tiny infant and he uses the infant to take down his foes. That's amazing. We need to see that. But it leaves us with some questions. Who are these babies? And who are God's enemies? And what does God put in their mouths that causes them to defeat his foes? I'm going to try to show a little bit more of my work when I get to point four, but for now I'm just going to give you the answers. These babies are the children of God. They are those who worship the I Am's majestic name in all creation that we just talked about in verse one. And his enemies are those who oppose God and who oppose his people. More to the point, They are those who refuse to worship God's majestic name and they oppose those that do worship him. So look again, verse two. He says, out of the mouth of babies, he establishes strength to still or to defeat his foes. So there is something that these infants cry out, something that they are speaking that God uses to overcome his enemies. And the answer is that it, is praises. These babies defeat God's enemies by praising him. So get a flow of the thought here. Put yourself in David's shoes. As David meditates on the glory of God and he launches into praise in verse 1, he remembers too that God uses weak things to show off his worth. The praises of weak babies, weak humans, weak people just like himself, writing psalms at night, sitting on a quiet hillside. God can throw his weight around. 
He could destroy these guys in a split second, but instead, he is populating the world with little children, children who love him and who adore their father. From the faithful Jew of the Old Covenant to the believing Christian today, we all are little children praising God in the midst of a corrupt and a hostile world. So do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-28 about this? Listen, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Every child of God, whether you came to faith at five or 75, is a death knell. It is a ringing out to the enemies of God. The cries of our worship, they ring out as a reminder that the King of Kings He is majestic. The I am still is. The king will come and he will glory over his enemies. Do you hear the praises? Do you hear him coming? He is coming. And the enemies will be brought to nothing. And they know they'll be brought to nothing because they hear the praises of the weak and the foolish. Isn't that amazing? that God chooses to use babies to defeat his enemies. Again, we're going to see a little more about how this works in point four, but for now, just be reminded, God loves to display his worth through weakness. Which brings us to point number three, the weakness of man. The next two points will be longer. Okay. The weakness of man. So verse three and four, it recapitulates David's meditation in verses 1 and 2. So for the second time in the psalm, he's praising God for his handiwork in the heavens, and he's going to compare it to weak humans. So verse 1, O Lord, uh, you are majestic. Your name is glorious in all creation. And then look at these babies. We're going to see the same basic idea right here, starting in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So it's likely that David wrote this psalm during the night since he doesn't mention anything about like the sun or the clouds, but he only mentions the moon and the stars. And I bet, I bet you've had the same experience that he describes. So maybe you've laid with your back against the beach and you've looked out at all the heavens, and you've been mesmerized by all the stars. Maybe you've been camping, and while you were up there, you, just, you saw this big, beautiful, bright, full moon, and you were just totally captivated and awestruck by it. In those moments, you begin contemplating the vastness of space, the limitless number of stars, the grandeur of, of the heavens. And if you're a Christian, you go one step further, and you're just amazed that, that Yahweh is holding all this thing together. And you praise him. Then maybe you go even one more step further. Maybe it hits you like it did David. 
why in the world does God care about me or anyone else? I mean, when you consider how effortlessly God made the heavens, how big space is, how weak and insignificant we are in comparison, who are you and who am I that God is mindful of us? Why shouldn't he just overlook us? Why shouldn't he just step over us like a bug that you don't see and don't care about? Why doesn't he just treat us like a piece of dust in a long-forgotten corner of the room? Why hasn't God just put us out of his mind and gone on to something else? But we can go one step further. Not only is God mindful of us, but David says he cares for us. Seriously? He doesn't just not step over us, but he condescends to us. He stoops down and he cares for us. Why? Why does God take it upon himself to be kind and compassionate? Why does he come down to our level to love us and to do us good? It's amazing. But then look at verse 5. David is going to really spin this out for us. It starts with the word, yet. We are so insignificant, but even still, or in spite of that, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes on the paths of the sea. David is astonished that even though we are so weak and we are so small, God has cared about us so much that he has crowned us, you and me, with glory and honor. Well, how? He gives us three ways. The first way he crowns us with glory and honor is it says he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. So the word translated heavenly beings here is the word Elohim. So that word can be translated as God, capital G, uh, gods, lowercase g, or even just angels. But either way, in, all, in all, all those cases, the point is the same. God has made man just a little lower than the divine. That is, we are still part of the created order, yet in a very special sense. We have been set apart in a special way. Well, in what way? That brings us to the second way. That God has crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us in his image. So Mary Beth read this for us earlier in Genesis 1. We are all, male and female, made in the image of God. That means we share in some limited sense in his own nature. Theologians would say we possess the communicable attributes of God. So we're not all wise like God. But we do possess some wisdom. We're not all loving like God, but we can and do sometimes love. We aren't all powerful like God, but we can exercise some power, some control over creation. And that way we share in his attributes. We're set apart from the animals. We have a will and emotions and a powerful mind. We are deeply relational 
we can know and we can be known. We can distinguish between right and wrong. And we all have inherent value, dignity, and worth because every human, at least faintly, reflects the glory of the God who made them. Like a mirror that's dirty and has a few cracks in it, still reflect him. Being made in the image of God, it is an honor. It is a privilege. It is a crown, as David says. And along with it comes the third way that God has crowned us. He has given us dominion over creation. God hasn't given dominion over creation to anything else. He's given it to us. David says in verse 6, that all things have been put under our feet so that we might tend to the earth and to the seas and to the skies and spread the glory of God over the face of all the earth. The king of the universe, in these ways, has given us a crown. We're part of creation, but we've also been set above it. We've been given authority over creation, but authority as representatives. And we are meant to walk around, to tend and to tame the planet, and to spread his glory over the earth, and do all of that according to his will. This glory, it crowns every single human being. All of us. We all bear the image of God and have the responsibility to exercise dominion in a God-glorifying way. So how do we do that? Well, let's just look at some practical things real fast. Practically speaking. This means we should work heartily for the Lord. One of the main ways that you exercise dominion is in your secular work. So when you go to your job, you are serving God by serving the common good. Uh, and that happens in every sort of way imaginable. You are, you're like a cog in the machine that God uses to give to everyone the things that they need. But of course, it also matters how we do our work. It matters very much how we do that work. Work hard for your employer. Respect your coworker as a fellow image bearer. Be kind to customers, even when they are not. And by doing these things, you're going to adorn the gospel. You're going to make God look good and glorious. Another implication of this high calling is that we should take care of our planet. So, there's a wide degree of opinions on what this practically means, but the principle should not be disputed by Christians. God gave us this planet to look after, and we have no right to trash the place. So just think seriously about what that means for you as an individual. How should you steward this great resource? It also means we should treat animals well. We should never harm or abuse animals without just cause. That being said, it's very clear in Genesis chapter 9, animals were given to us for food. And in the same instance, God speaking to Noah, he describes that he put the fear of man on animals. And the animals are going to be uh, afraid, for, afraid of us. And the enmity was going to increase. Simple truth is, is a lot of animals want to hurt us. <laughs> so for example, when it came to the gorilla, Harambe, and to the child that fell into the, the habitat, there should be no doubt in the mind of the Christian which being has more value and what needs to be done in that particular situation. Finally, in general, Exercise in dominion means we should orient our entire lives towards God and worship Him. 
the power and authority that God has given us must be exercised in reference to God. That is, we should use this authority not for our own purposes, but for God's purposes. We need to do things not according to our will, but according to his will. And God has made very clear that what he wants to do is not just feed bellies, but he wants to feed souls. He doesn't want our planet just to be a nice place, but he wants to fill it with glory. You were not crowned so that you would use your crown to serve yourself. You were crowned so that you would use your crown to serve the Lord. Therefore, let everything that you do be done for the glory of God. Okay, so God calls weak humans, insignificant humans, to that high and mighty task. We just discuss how to do it. But, or, and also, it just goes down to the fact that this is this principle at work, that God loves to display his worth through weakness. And yet, there's a bit of a, a conundrum here. You've probably noticed, if you look around, but uh, mankind is failing miserably. I, we're, we're, instead of showing off God's glory, what we continue to d- demonstrate and to show off is just our weakness, only our weakness. I mean, in a limited sense, we do still show off God's worth. We're sort of doing the plan, but not a lot. Sometimes humans treat each other's fellow image bearers. Sometimes we show off God's glory by the way we live, but not often. Definitely not the way that we should. If we managed a business the way that we've exercised dominion over this planet, we'd be fired, be over. I mean, maybe you say, well, Adam and Eve kind of did it. Sure, they did. They exercised dominion rightly for a time. It was short-lived. I mean, get this. God is tending to the entire universe without their help, makes them, crowns them with glory, says, take care of this little plot of land. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't take care of it. They sinned when they ate the fruit. And then sin entered the world, and God's perfect design was fractured. Now we live under the curse. Animals don't listen to us. The ground brings forth thorns and thistles. Work is hard. Nature tries to kill us. We often despise one another instead of honor one another. People are living according to their own will instead of God's will. They're imaging not the God who made them, but they're imaging their favorite idol. This place is a mess. It's a mess. So why doesn't God just give us the pink slip? Can't he just strip us of our crown? Let us go out there and act like wild animals, since in many respects, we kind of are already doing that anyways. We had our chance, and we failed. And we failed miserably. That's true. Mankind has failed. We continue to fail. But rest assured, God was not caught off guard by the fall. God knows what he's doing. He didn't endow us with these gifts because we were particularly worthy, right? We just, we saw that in the psalm. What is man that you should crown us with glory and honor? And David, I I imagine he's just, he's perplexed at the whole thing. (laughs) And we should be too. I mean, why? God, why have you made us these specks of incompetent and rebellious dust? Why have you made us your vice regents over such a glorious creation? And David doesn't resolve the mystery. He just moves right on. 
Instead, he just closes in verse 9. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David knows that our dominion has been a disaster. But he also knows, although he doesn't know exactly how, but he knows that the Lord is going somewhere with this. Again, God loves to show off his worth through weakness. Just as he uses babies to defeat his foes in verse 2, so he uses weak man over his glorious creation to show off his glory. The rest of the New Testament is going to pick up on this theme. It's going to help us make sense of why God did this. Made us lower than divine beings. Made us in in his image. Gave us dominion. It foreshadowed something. Someone is going to come and exercise dominion correctly. Which brings us to point four. The weakness of Christ. The weakness of Christ. We're going to look at two places in the New Testament that quote Psalm 8. There are others. But before we do, I just need to pause and make sure they understand a very important concept. And that concept is federal headship. So the Bible, it speaks of two important heads or representatives of the human race. The first is Adam, and the second is, you may guess it, Jesus, who is also called the second Adam. So we're united to the first Adam by flesh and blood. Adam's blood runs through our veins. And because of that, as it goes with Adam, so it goes with us. He was given dominion, we were given dominion. He fell in sin, we fall in sin. But the Bible also tells us that the second Adam has come. And we are not connected to him by flesh and blood, but instead, if you trust in Jesus, you are connected to him. By faith, you are united to him. And now, as it goes with Jesus, so it goes with you. Okay, here's what we're going to see. Jesus came as a representative of the human race. He was made the weakest of the weak. And now God is putting everything under his feet. And one day, he will fully and finally be given complete dominion while Christians rule under him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're going. All right, let's look at the first text. Go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9, and keep your finger in Psalm chapter 8. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. Follow along with me, please. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm chapter 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Let's see if we can work through this. So we know that Psalm 8, in its immediate context, is talking about human beings in general. But the author of Hebrews explains that the psalm is not just talking about that, but it's talking about Jesus in particular. So look at verse 9 again, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So the man or the son of man in Psalm chapter 8, at a deeper level, is not just talking about human beings, but it's also talking about the representative of human beings. That is, Jesus Christ. Next question. How was Jesus made lower than the angels? Doesn't that sound kind of blasphemous? Can you say that? Well, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament how this was done. It says that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and he put on a human body. So don't, don't miss that. The majestic I am of Psalm chapter 8 took on flesh like you and like me. And then he further humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God loves to show off his worth through weakness. The one who made the angels then made himself for a little while lower than the angels by coming down to earth as a human. And then he made himself the lowest of the lowest of humans by dying a horrific criminal's death, one that he did not deserve. The very beings that were supposed to spread the glory of God over all creation murdered the king of glory. They crucified him on a tree that he made, atop a hill that he made, with the hands that he made. Talk about stewardship. (laughs) And all of this, amazingly, is according to God's plan. Jesus died for sinners so that if anyone repents of their sins and trusts in him, they'll be saved. That's true for anyone in this room. If you will turn away from your sins and trust in Christ, that he has died for you, you will be saved. So this amazing display of humility purchased sinners. But what else is the result of Jesus becoming the weakest of the weak? Well, again, look at Hebrews 2.9. Quoting Psalm 8, he says, He is crowned with glory and honor because of his sufferings. Now, keeping your finger there, look back at Psalm 8.5 real fast. Psalm 8.5. What does it mean to be crowned with glory and honor? Well, it means to be given dominion over all the earth. Or to use the language of Philippians 2 again, because he became weak, God has exalted Christ. He has lifted him up. He has given him dominion. Listen, it reads, Philippians reads, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. I want you to see this so badly. The first Adam, he exalted himself above God, and now he is dead. But the second Adam, he humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And now God has given him a name above every name, and he lives. Not only does he live, but do you see the parallels with what is said about Jesus and what is said about Yahweh in Psalm chapter 8? Psalm 8, 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your what in all the earth? Your name in all the earth. And we just read that because Christ was made weak, he has been exalted and given a name that is above every name. The same name that is above all of creation. And now Jesus, he is also to receive the same praise and adoration as the Father who is above all of creation. All of creation will bow down to Jesus and say, you are Lord. You are our Lord. How is it? That Jesus can receive this worship and this praise? Well, it's because he's God. He is the I am of Psalm chapter 8. The same I am who came and took on the weakness of human flesh. So Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he has fulfilled in our place what we have failed to do. We have failed to exercise dominion. We have failed to fill the earth with God's praise. But Jesus, through weakness, has inaugurated a new kingdom. And it's going to be under his rule and dominion. There is a new creation with a new Eden, with a new Adam in it. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I don't see it. Where is this new kingdom? Where is this perfect dominion? Everything here is still a mess. So go back to Hebrews chapter 2 if you're not there still. Look at verse 8. I'm going to paraphrase a little so you can see it more clearly. Now when God the Father put everything in subjection to Jesus, meaning he gave Jesus dominion, He left nothing outside of Jesus' control. Yet, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. It can be a little confusing. How can it be that everything is in subjection to Jesus and everything is not in subjection to Jesus? The author is talking about something that we often call the already not yet of the new covenant. All things were put under Jesus. They were all subjected to him at his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The work has already been done. But we won't experience the full reality of this until Jesus comes back and exercises that full dominion. So one popular analogy is D-Day versus V-Day. When the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, the, the victory was as good as one. But it still took another about 300 days or so before V-Day, when the victory was made official. 
Well, in the same way, Jesus has already won. But we're waiting for Jesus to come back and make the victory official. That is, he has already earned full dominion over creation. But one day in the future, he's going to have to come back and exercise his full dominion. One other thing I want to clarify here. What I don't mean and what I don't want you to hear me say is that God is somehow less than completely sovereign. I am not saying that God is not sovereign. He is. He's sovereign over all the good and all the bad. But when Jesus comes to exercise dominion, it'll be free from all of the bad. Everything will function according to the way that God designed it and made it to be. So, for example, God is completely sovereign over cancer now. But when Jesus comes back and exercises full dominion, there won't be any more cancer. That's the good news of what Jesus has accomplished here. We'll look at one more text. You guys are doing great. Matthew 21, 14 through 16. Matthew 21, 14 through 16. Starting in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a, a form of praise. Well, chief, chief priests heard all of this, and the scribes, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Interesting. So I told you I was going to circle back around to this. Talking about Psalm chapter 8 to the cries of the infants. What's going on there? Well, here it is. Jesus, he's come to Jerusalem. He's, he's doing all these awesome miracles. And these miracles are a glimpse into what it's going to be like in his kingdom when he is reversing the curse, when he's healing image bearers, when he's just making these amazing displays of God's glory. And as he works, the children, they begin crying out praise to him, praises to Jesus. And they call him the son of David, which means they recognize that this is the king who is supposed to come. And the Pharisees, they they see all of this and they come to Jesus and they're astonished at what is happening. So they start saying to him, Jesus, shut these kids up. They should not be saying such a thing. And you, you better explain why you're allowing them to worship you as the son of David. Who do you think you are? Just like I said earlier in point two, they're, they're opposing God and they are opposing those who worship God. And then Jesus, in just typical jaw-dropping fashion, quotes only the first half of verse 2. He kind of makes a little cliffhanger here. He also helps us interpret what it means. He says, don't you know, Pharisees, that God puts praises in the mouth of babies? Now imagine the face of the Pharisees. (laughs) They probably memorized this verse decades ago. And like, he puts praises in the mouth of babies to still the enemy in the avenger. Wait, are you, are you calling us the enemy? 
Are you saying right now that these babies are defeating us? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, there's two groups of people. Those who praise the God of creation and those who don't. There are the children and there are the enemies. They're praising me and you're not. (laughs) So what does that make you? It's bad news. (laughs) The praises of those children are bad news for the bad guys. Those who have exalted themselves over against God, they're about to lose dominion. They are, oh, they are against him to his face. But those praises, they're ringing out. You're not going to keep your dominion. The weak and the humble, they're about to take control. And their praises are getting louder. The wick on the bomb is growing shorter. The son of David is about to take his throne. All who oppose this king and who oppose his children, whether principalities, whether, whether evil spirits in this world, whether the hypocritical religious leaders of the Pharisees, whether the hypocrite religious person today, whether the wandering atheist in Alabama right now, all of them, all of them are going to be put under Jesus' feet. And the children, they're going to take their seat beside their king as they sing his praises. David could not have seen all of this from his standpoint. But as a prophet, as a man after God's own heart, he he had his finger on the pulse of history. He knew that there was something about the way that God had made man and put us and given us dominion, yet we're so weak. He knew it was about something. Well, here it is. Jesus is the Son of Man in Psalm 8, verse 5, who was made lower than the angels for only a moment. Jesus is the man who is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the man who will have complete and total dominion over all creation. And Jesus is the one who receives the praises of the infants in Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, because he possesses the majestic name of Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 and 9. Here is Jesus, the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. So that's a lot of theology. And there's more that we could uncover. I, just, I, just, I want to spin it all out. It's so, so much. But time is short. We need to ask one more question as we wrap things up. What do I do with this? What do I, what do, I do with this truth? Well, here's three quick things to take, to take with you. Number one, don't be ashamed of your weakness. The world's idea of wise, noble, valuable, it's not the same as God's. But God promises that he will humble the exalted in this life. And he will exalt the humble. We've just seen Jesus is a perfect picture of this. No, one, no man has been made lower than Jesus. And no man will ever be as exalted. So forget living up to the world's standards. Just, just let it go. <laughs> Instead, Pursue God with all of your might. The world's going to think you're foolish. They're going to think you're wasting the one life the stars have given you. They're going to say that you're weak. So be it. Let the world call us weak. 
and let your weakness show off his worth. So go to church when the world says you should be asleep. Turn your cheek when the world says you need to stand up for yourself. Pour out your lives for your children when the world says you should put yourself first. Give your money away when the world says you need to pursue the American dream. Unashamedly become weak in the eyes of the world and you will glorify God and he will exalt you on the last day. Number two, maintain hope in the midst of suffering. Creation's messed up. You don't need me to tell you that. You see it. But be encouraged. The next one won't be. It's going to be so sweet. We messed up when we traded our crown for a piece of fruit. But Christ, he has come and he has restored us already, but not yet. And he will exercise full dominion over the new heavens and the new earth. Everything will be the way it's supposed to be again. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. And then we will bask in the glory of God from shore to shore for all eternity. Just a little further, brothers and sisters. Maintain hope in the midst of suffering. And lastly, like David, the whole point of this is praise God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. He is the I am. And he is worthy of your praises. And like little infants, like little children of God, let us give him our praise. So to that end, we're going to sing Victor and the Lamb in just a moment, but first, let's just praise him in a quick, short prayer praise. So would you bow your hearts with me? And let's close in prayer. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You've displayed your infinite worth through the weakness of your Son. And so we cry out like little children, Hosanna in the highest to the Son of David. Your name is above every name. You have restored us and you will restore us. Lord, may our praises always be in our mouths as we imperfectly try to spread your glory over this creation now. Give us success, Lord. As we call people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your marvelous life. No, Lord, we long for the coming of that kingdom. When your praises will be sung from every square inch of creation. And your glorious dominion will be enjoyed forever and ever. King Jesus, would you come soon? We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.